for those of you um, that are new to us, and we do have some guests today, praise the Lord for that, uh, we are currently studying the book of Acts, and uh, over the last four weeks, we've actually been examining Peter's great sermon in uh, chapter 2, 14 to 41, and uh, through our study of that sermon, uh, we've discovered that Peter's main driving point behind that whole amazing sermon uh, was to drive home the reality and truth that Jesus was and is Israel's Messiah. Peter uh, presented his hearers on that day of Pentecost before multitudes. He presented them with five compelling proofs proofs that we discussed uh, over the weeks, and those were the miracles of Jesus and the crucifixion of Jesus as God's predetermined plan, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension and exaltation of Jesus, and, uh, and then he kind of closed it out with the divinely appointed lordship and messiahship of Jesus. Now, at we learned this last week, but at the end of Peter's sermon, Peter laid the sin of rejecting Jesus and that blood guilt for murdering him upon his hearers. And, and what happened was uh, many of them responded uh, with a great uh, plea for mercy. What do we do, is what they said. And Peter then instructed them to uh, repent of their sins, of their wickedness, of their rejection of him, and of their blood guilt, murdering him. And he told them to repent and, and then to express their repentance through being baptized in the name of Jesus. Uh, and then at the end of that glorious passage, we saw that 3,000 souls were saved, were baptized and added to the church. Now, in our next passage of study, it's, it's really one of my all-time favorite scriptures. Uh, we're going to be focusing in on Acts 2.42 to 47, which is this great little paragraph uh, that is sort of a description of the early church, what they did, how they functioned. And uh, it's always been one of, my, one of my great favorite passages, and there's probably some in this room today that just really love that passage too. It's such a great thing. And I can't tell you how many times I've gone back to that passage over the years as a minister of the gospel and just tried to kind of refocus my ministry on that structure and those things that that early church practiced. So we're going to be looking at that text, and uh, as we move through that text, that 242 to 47, we will uh, discover what our past brothers and sisters in the Lord um, will discover what they were devoted to, and, uh, and we'll see what they were devoted to and how God blessed them and used them and worked through them. Uh, this particular passage does serve as an excellent model uh, for a church, a new church, or an existing church to follow. Um, I don't think that we would want to take this wonderful text and reduce it down to a formula where if we do X and add that to Z and throw a, a Y in there, we end up with an A. And I think that pragmatism, the pragmatism in the church today says to do that. I don't think we want to do that, but we do want to look at it and see how they functioned, what they did, and how God operated in that and worked in that and blessed that. And so as a new church, we, we need to do that as much as we can, right? I mean, we're a new church. We've met like 13 or 14 times now. We're, we're green, man. 
you know, and, and, and many of us that are serving here in the church and our leaders have been in ministry for a while, but that doesn't make us experts in church planning. It doesn't, I mean, really? No. We're gutting this thing out. We're trying to figure it out as we go. And so this particular passage is wonderful for the leadership of this church and for the rest of us. And so I'm very, very excited. Let's, uh, let's go ahead and read that text together and then I'll pray and then we'll go ahead and examine it together. And, and I believe God is going to really bless us. It's going to be good because his word is good. Let's see. We're going to be looking at Acts 2, 42 to 47. Probably should have set that up beforehand in my Bible here with the ultra small text. I'm getting glasses this week. I can't wait. I normally wear them, and uh, they got so fogged over from just abuse that, you know, now when I put them on, I see six Bibles. It's like I'm like a, I'm like a fly. Pick the one in the middle. And so now it's just, oh, man, it's hard for me to read. 242 to 47, let me read the holy word of God. It says this, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And it says, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. 46, and day by day, attending the temple, together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Father God, We should never dare to tread on the exposition and study of your word without first seeking you in prayer. This is a lesson that I have had to learn so many times where I've been in a rush or in a hurry. God, we come before you now humbly. A sinner saved by grace, God. We ask, God, that you would speak through your holy word, that you would be exalted, that you would reveal things to us, God, that you would sanctify us and transform us by the power of your word. Direct our hearts now, Lord, our eyes, our minds to these marvelous truths, the truths of Scripture, and be praised through it, Father. Receive the glory and help me, God. Help me, God, to serve you well in this moment, to speak only your words. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, friends, you guys ready? You got note sheets and pens or whatever else that you might need there? Because you're going to probably want to take some notes. Let's look at 42 together. This is kind of how we do it here. If you're unfamiliar, we just kind of read the text, pray over it, and then we begin to examine it line by line or a couple of lines at a time. Kind of read the line and then give commentary on it. 42 says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers, is what the word says. The first thing that Luke says that the early church was, was that it was devoted. Very first thing that he says. See, the church is new at this point. There was 120 
believers beforehand that were filled with the mighty spirit of God and came out and did these miraculous things and spoke in these foreign languages and communicated the wonders of God to multitudes from all over lands. So there was a church to some degree, but now we really have the church here. This is really the birth of the church. And the first thing that we see as we move from all these people being saved and added to the church, the first thing that we see is devotion. Now, devotion is a sign of genuine repentance and faith. That's not to say that those in other systems of religion and cults and things can't or aren't devoted. That's not to say that at all because there is a high degree of devotion in Islam and those things. But one of just the rudimentary foundational facts is, is that if someone is truly, truly repentive and has real saving faith, devotion to the things of God will follow. And so the first thing Luke does is he says, they were devoted. They were devoted. Now, how many times have you seen or how many people have you known in your life that have maybe attended church for a season and maybe even went forth at an altar call or something like that and maybe even hung out for a little while after that and you were just like, yes. And then all of a sudden they vanish. They're gone. They don't attend church any longer. They don't really interact with Christians. Maybe they go back to their old set of friends or whatever it is. I, I don't know what it looks like on the other side. But for some weird reason, they disappear. They're gone. Maybe you see them periodically and you ask them, what's going on? What's happening? Well, I'm just doing this and I'm just busy and I'm all these things and, and all this stuff. And, and it's really a sad thing, isn't it? Is that to say that those people aren't saved? I don't know. I don't hold the keys to that mystery. But one of the things that we see so clearly in Scripture is that when someone is truly repentant and saved, devotion follows. And it's a sustaining devotion. That's not to say that that devotion isn't attacked at times or we become complacent and lazy because that's reality, because we have these flesh suits. But for the most part, devotion comes and it remains. And this early church was devoted. They didn't repent and, and then get baptized and then hang out for a while and then fizzle out. No, they devoted themselves to the things of God, as we will soon see. Now, what were these things that they devoted themselves to? What were these things of God that they devoted themselves to? There are four very important things that we see in the text. Uh, G. Campbell Morgan calls them the four ordinances of Christian fellowship. Some scholars have said that these are just foundational things and realities within the church. Some have said these four things are actually the things that constitute whether a church is really a church or not. And so these are very, very important things. The things that they devoted themselves to are very clear in the text. The apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Now I'd like to take some time to examine and focus on each one of these and just put a little commentary behind each one so that we can know what exactly was playing out. Let's talk about the apostles' teaching first. During the early years of the church, the apostles were the divinely anointed and appointed leaders and teachers uh, for Christ's church. A little later, they would 
begin to anoint and appoint elders and deacons to execute those responsibilities in congregations as the church began to be scattered uh, through persecution and all that. And so at first, they were like the pastors of the church. They're the ones that did the leading, and they're the ones that did the, the teaching. And uh, what did they teach? Well, the New Testament indicates that they taught on a broad range of things. If you look at the book of Acts, and if you look at some of the epistles, or maybe even uh, you know, a gospel that was written by Matthew, and gospel that was written by John, you can get an idea and a sense of the things that they taught. They taught on the divinity of Christ, and the brotherhood of the church, and, and love, and brotherly love, and, and relational things, and how to treat one another. I mean, they, they just covered a broad range of, of things. So they taught on a lot of stuff. So we get a sense that when they were teaching, they were teaching, I think, primarily the gospel, but they were also covering some of those other things, even some of those practical things that we see in, in the scripture. Now, one of their primary goals as a, as a team of leaders, as a team of apostles, as a gathering of apostles, uh, was to take the church from spiritual infancy, which is what we see in our scripture here, to maturation, to spiritual maturity. That was one of their goals. That was one of their goals. And in fact, Paul, who later became an apostle, said that he did not shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God's word to those he ministered to so that they could be brought to a mature knowledge of their sin and of the gospel, is what Acts 20, 27 says. And so therefore, evangelism and maturation, the maturity of the saints, are the primary goals or were the primary goals of the apostles and really are the primary goals behind the teaching and preaching of God's word in the church. And a pastor is to devote himself to studying and teaching the scriptures so that those two things are accomplished, that evangelism and that maturation. Now, some in the church today take a very different view of this they believe that it is the responsibility of each and every Christian to bring themselves to maturation. They believe that Christians need to be self-feeders and that they need to feed themselves and that they need to invest in their own faith and that they, it's all up to them, is what some teach. And that pastors are merely coaches or encouragers who help the sheep along the way. And they just give these little sermons and these little encouragements just to kind of to, to spur them on and, and just, to, just to keep them going in a certain direction. And, and like a coach would on a football team, when the, the team starts to lag, then, then the coach comes in and says, you're lagging, and this is what you need to do. And so some view it to where Christians are responsible for their own growth and that pastors are mere coaches, encouragers, motivators. Churches that believe that philosophy usually feature shallow but very uh, motivated teaching. Uh, it's shallow, though. It's very surface. It's topic only. And, and usually the verses are just ripped from all kinds of places there and put in place to support 
a topic, but there really isn't any exposition of Scripture. Churches that believe this philosophy, that's pretty much the way their pastors teach. And then they undergird all of that with an enormous amount of ministry for people, for growth opportunity, like Bible studies and fellowship meetings and, uh, and all these things. A lot of times that's what those churches look like, and in all honesty, that's the majority of churches in America. Is it because most clergymen believe that it's the responsibility? I don't know. But there is such a high contingency of men in the ministry that believe that philosophy, and that's how they're operating. Now, I really like what Bruce said weeks ago when we were talking about eldership, and we were talking about the sheep and how elders are to be shepherds who teach and protect and you know, help the sheep. And, and one of the things that he said, and he wasn't meaning to be offensive, but he just plainly stated that sheep are dumb. I, I, I mean, I know because I'm a sheep. And I, I know what my propensities are. I know sheep have to be led. Sheep have to be cared for. One of the great metaphors in Scripture is that the believers are sheep who need a shepherd. And what is a disciple? A disciple is a learner. How can a learner learn if he isn't taught? We're not talking rocket science here, friends. A disciple is a learner, a follower. How can he learn? How can he follow the Lord if, his, if he isn't or she isn't taught how to? And uh, my wife and I talk about this subject periodically, and uh, she made a great point a week or two ago when we were talking about it because she was interacting with someone that she really cares about. They're really good friends, and this person kind of holds that particular view and you know, that it's up to the sheep to do all the work and the pastor's just kind of, go on, cute little ewe lamb, you know, or whatever. And, and she said, if that's the case, then why do we need pastors? We don't. We don't need pastors if it's all up to the sheep. We don't need them. Now, can you imagine what it would have been like if the apostles held that view. Thank you for coming to the temple today. Our primary goal is to motivate you to become a self-feeder. Make sure that you read your scrolls this week and get plugged into our weekly ministry so that you can grow. And by the way, here's three points on how to improve your marriage. The church would have been spiritually malnourished, lean, Lethargic, complacent, apathetic, susceptible, and ill-equipped to deal with the multitudes of false teachers that were going to infiltrate her, as we read in all the epistles. What is Paul doing the whole time that he's writing? They're coming, or they're here. Stand against them. Stand in what you've been taught. If the apostles had taken that approach, if they had believed that venomous Philosophy, it's doubtful that the church would have survived the persecution of the Herods and Nero. You know, but the church actually flourished during that time of persecution. It exploded, it expanded. And that is primarily because it had been well equipped to deal with those horrible things through the apostles' teaching. 
Listen to how the Apostle Paul exhorted Timothy, the young pastor. He said in 1 Timothy 4.13, Devote yourself, pastor, to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to what? To teaching. See, it is the calling and goal of pastors, the pastoral ministry, to preach and proclaim the word for two reasons. Evangelism and maturation of the saints. If pastors fail to do their duty, the sheep are in trouble. Don't be offended by that. Humble yourself and say, I'm a sheep and I need to be led. Because that's the reality of it. Even the pastor needs to be shepherd, shepherded. That's the goal of a pastor. And, and that's exactly what the apostles did. God was saving people through the proclamation of the gospel and their goal was to ground them in the gospel and mature them in the gospel, to equip them in the gospel. And that's exactly what they did. And we see the church just was amazing during this era. The second thing they were devoted to was the fellowship. Fellowship is koinonia in Greek, and it basically means partnership or deep sharing. Those who receive Jesus Christ become partners with him and other believers, 1 John 1, 3. This fellowship is a permanent thing because our shared eternal life is forever. And so this fellowship starts with someone being saved and brought into the family of God, and it, it continues on, off into eternity. It's a beautiful thing. Fellowship is also the spiritual duty of believers to stimulate each other to holiness and faithfulness. Hebrews 10, 24 to 25 clearly states this. It says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, and he says, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. See, some in the church just forsook the fellowship and went off and started doing their own thing and became a bunch of lone rangers. Makes them susceptible. They become in peril, imperiled when they go out on their own. And so it is the goal of fellowship to draw believers together, it's a very sweet thing. It's an amazing thing. And in it, they, we stir one another up to love and good works. And we don't want to neglect that. We want to stay in the fellowship. Now, fellowship is different than friendship. Friendship can be based upon many different things, like a shared love of sports or, you know, fishing or crocheting for not you guys. Um, Maybe some of you are just good at that, I don't know. But fellowship is based upon a mutual love for Jesus Christ and his people. The Philippians had amazing fellowship in their church. Listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians 1, 3 to 5. He said this, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. The Philippians got it. They kept coming together and encouraging one another and building one another up. The early church got it. There really is nothing out there like Christian fellowship. When it's done biblically, 
which means that the gathered are building one another up in the gospel, it is the sweetest, most joyful and encouraging thing in the church. It's just spectacular. And this is coming from a guy who's done a lot of stuff, tried a lot of things, most of them not good. Seeking to find that kind of camaraderie and encouragement and love and acceptance in a multitude of different things, in a multitude of different groups, but never finding it. I found it in the church. Interestingly, removal from the fellowship of believers is one of the final stages of church discipline towards a wayward, unrepentant Christian. The threat is, if you don't straighten up, if you don't repent of your sin, you will be removed from the fellowship of believers. And see, that shows us how sweet the fellowship is supposed to be. That's supposed to be taken as a threat by that person who's just gone nuts. And, and the idea is that if, if they're threatened by that, they should be compelled to repent because of how sweet the fellowship is. I can't even imagine, you know, if I'd gotten involved in something, I would not want to lose the fellowship of believers because in it you, you, <laughs> you, you, you receive something that, that can't be found in any other context, Right? But you see, when fellowship isn't done right, when it isn't done biblically, when it isn't about building one another up and keeping the gospel at the center, when it becomes about just hanging around and goofing off, when it's just about that, how is that a threat to kick somebody out of that if they don't straighten up? There's no threat there if fellowship isn't done right because they're getting the same thing from all the other groups they hang out in. And I say this because it's very easy for us to mishandle fellowship. I'm guilty. I've had a lot of small groups. And, and, and they were really wonderful groups with awesome people that were just, just a blessing. But there were so many times where I wasn't disciplined and where I turned it into shenanigans and goofing around and messing around and, and, and sometimes not, you know, just being dumb. And all of a sudden the fellowship, because it's not biblical, because it's not what it's supposed to be, it's, it's now lost that beauty of building one another and, and, and encouraging one another, it just, it just becomes like anything else, any other context. And so when someone becomes wayward and we come to them and say, look, you've got to, you've got to stop or we're going to have to remove you from the fellowship. And we do that for two reasons. First of all, they're dangerous to the fellowship. Second of all, it's meant to be an act of discipline to get them to straighten up because it's supposed to be a threat. But if the fellowship that we've been hosting isn't biblical, then what kind of threat is that? They're like, I don't give a crud about being in that fellowship i don't care about being in that because i just go down and hang out with my buddies over at the club and it's better it's the same thing and there's beer well maybe there's beer in your fellowship i don't know but there isn't some but you know it's fellowship of the church is is an amazing thing it's a beautiful thing it's an organic thing it's an encouraging thing but when it's done wrong, it, it, it's like anything else. And like I said, all of this has been very convicting for me personally because there have been times where I've just allowed amazing gospel-infused fellowship become something else. And I think maybe all of us have done that to some degree. 
And may we not be that way. May we understand the power of fellowship, the value of fellowship, and how important it is for us to make investments in one another's lives while we're in fellowship. Now, that doesn't mean that fellowship's like, oh, it's just this weird religious thing, and we don't have fun and throw, you know, Bill into the pool. And No, it, it's all that and a bag of chips. But it needs to be about the gospel and about, you know, the, just the core of it is we're building each other up, man. We're together to encourage, to disciple one another, to build up. So it doesn't have to be this weird, you know, hospital clean kind of, you know, and all of a sudden we, we can switch into that mode. No, it's still fun and joyous and all those things. But may we keep the main thing the main thing, and that's the welfare of those that are in it. There, gospel, I love you, I care about you. How can I encourage you? How can I teach you? What do you have for me? And that's what they had going here in this church. They had this amazing fellowship, amazing fellowship, being together and pouring into one another. They kept it the way that it should be. And then the third thing they were devoted to was the breaking of bread. The breaking of bread here has a specific uh, meaning. This is the term that the early church used to describe communion or the Lord's Supper. Um, one would say, why didn't they say the breaking of bread and then the taking of the blood or the drinking of wine or something like that, the other component? Well, I think that the, what they did was they just took this term and they just sort of abbreviated it down. You know, it's just an abbreviation of the Lord's Supper here. And, and, the, and the phrase is used in other places to describe something else, as we'll see. But this right here, this particular text, is a specific reference to the Lord's Supper. Most of us know that the breaking of bread symbolizes, or the bread symbolizes the broken body of Jesus Christ. You know, the early church was devoted to celebrating communion regularly as a means to commune with Christ, as a means to confess sin, as a means to reflect upon the finished work of Christ at Calvary. There is evidence that meals may have been shared before communion. We see that in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty to 34. The Christians just, man, they put it all together. You know, they'd come together and they'd listen to the word of God preach the gospel, and then they'd, you know, they'd have a time of fellowship, and then they'd, you know, have a meal together, and then they'd take the Lord's Supper together, and then in the end, they'd, they'd pray together. Really a beautiful thing that they had. Now, the breaking of bread is not optional for Christians. It is commanded, Matthew 26, 26 to 28, Mark 14, 22 to 24, Luke 22, 17 to 20, and 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 26. The breaking of bread, taking communion, celebrating the Lord's Supper is actually commanded. So it's not an option for the church. Communion is very important to the life of the church for many, many reasons. It reminds Christians of the dreadfulness of sin. What do you reflect upon when you're taking communion? The broken body of Christ, the poured out blood, Calvary, the cross. You see, communion becomes a great reminder of the dreadfulness of sin as we envision God on the cross. Look at how ugly that image is, how horrible it is. Why? Because of sin. Sin is a dreadful thing. It reminds Christians of their own futility and helplessness. 
Your best friend wasn't on that cross. It was God who had to come down and do ministry, live a perfect life, live in perfect righteousness, perfect obedience, and then he had to take all our sin on our, from us and on that cross, and he had to die a bloody, horrific death on there. It reminds us of our own futility. This was God who had to come and do this because we couldn't save ourselves. It reminds us of our own futility and helplessness that the God of the universe had to come and do it. Reminds Christians of the imputed righteousness of Christ. You see, at Calvary, Christ made a trade with those who believe. He took their junky, filthy, deadly, hell-bound sin on his own perfect body. And he traded his righteousness. He gave his righteousness to those who believe. So that they would be justified before a holy, perfect God. It reminds us of the imputation of Christ's righteousness. It reminds Christians of the completed work of Jesus' atonement. So many of us tend to think that there's more to it and that we just need to keep earning and working. And What did Christ say? It is finished. It's a done work. It's a completed work. The atonement has been made. It's not a continuance, as the Catholics believe. He's not still on the cross, dying and bleeding out every day for your daily, moment by moment, minute by minute, hour by hour sins. It's a finished work. You boil those things down. Communion safeguards Christians against the default mode of works righteousness. That's the default mode of every living person, every person who's ever lived, every person who's living now, and every person who will ever live. Their default mode is I've got to earn my way with God. I've got to earn my righteousness. And the cross says, no, I've done it. I did the work. Just receive it by faith. That's, that's one of the things I love the most about communion, is that it's a constant reminder that, Phil, stop your striving. He already loves you. You're perfect to him because the blood of Christ. Don't go out and try to earn anything with the Father. Just respond to him in gratefulness and love and obedience. That's why I love it, because I need that, because I'm, I'm an earner, I'm a worker. Oh. Reminds Christians of the depth of God's grace, mercy, and love. I don't think that there is a person in this room that will ever, ever, ever be able to fathom the depth of the cross. Oh, we'll know all things when we get to heaven. Really? That might be. But what happened there was deep, profound, mysterious to some degree. Yes, there's a simplicity to it but there's mysteries that encompass it. And, 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 and it, it just communion reminds us of the depth of God's grace, mercy, and love because even though we were still sinners, Christ died for us on the cross. Do you see what communion does? It should bring all these things to the mind. It gives Christians a moment confess their sins before the Lord. 
All too often we forget. Ah, I'm just covered by the blood and, you know, and, and that's a good thing and, and that's an amen, hallelujah, and whatever you want to add to that that's biblical. But at the same time, we can get ourselves to a place of just not stopping and coming before the Lord and acknowledging our sins or even asking the Holy Spirit to reveal to us some of the things that we've got going in our lives. It's pretty easy to get in that mode of operation. We're busy people, are we not? We've got families, we've got ministries, we've got all these things, we've got jobs, we've got all these things going on. And how often do we really stop and enter before the throne of grace and say, reveal to me what I've got here. Or I'm fully aware of some of this stuff. Take it, remove it, purify me. And see, communion gives the church a moment to do that. And that's another one of the reasons why we do it every week here at this church. I don't want a day or a night to fall without me confessing and bringing things to the Lord. Because, you know, if you just let that go, if you just let that go, you're going to get yourself in a lot of trouble. You become calloused and hardened, more susceptible to sin. And so communion is a, a great opportunity to confess. And then finally, the Lord's Supper communion brings unity in the church as Christians acknowledge their sin and need for Christ together. Everyone's together celebrating, and everyone in the room is a sinner saved by grace. Everyone in the room looking around or with your head bowed can see that there's a whole mess of people present who are just like you. And that brings unity. Look at all these fallen people around here. I'm not the only one that's fallen. I feel like it. No. Not one is not fallen. And so it brings unity. It brings great unity. And you see the importance of taking communion together? I mean, that's just eight things. I'm sure there's another eight times ten. And that's just eight things that it reminds us of. And, and the early church, I think, maybe they didn't get all of that at this point. Maybe they did. But they understood the value of breaking bread together and reflecting upon the cross. And, and it's such a powerful thing that they did. They really got it. The fourth and final important thing that the early church was devoted to was the prayers, it says. What were the prayers? Because it says the prayers. It doesn't say they were devoted to prayer. It says the prayers. So there's a specificity to the prayers here is what we see. Luke is referring primarily to corporate prayer or to praying together as a gathered body is what he's saying. So that's the specific thing there. It's not any one prayer in particular or this type of prayer or that type of prayer. It's prayer together is what it is. And prayer in the early church was about being in the Lord's presence. And it was about petitioning the Lord for help in a multitude of ways. And so often we view it just as that petitioning instead of I want to enter into the presence of Lord and be the Lord and be close to Him right now and enjoy His presence and commune with Him. And see, that's what the early church got. They got that it's equally about communing and then petitioning. I really like uh, Barclay's comments on this text, and he writes tremendous things, and then there's sometimes he just writes things that are like, huh? Eh. But a lot of times he gets it. He wrote, these early Christians knew that they could not 
meet life in their own strength and that they did not need to. He says they always went into God before they went out into the world. They were able to meet the problems of life because they had first met him. These are difficult times to be a Christian, friends, in this first century. And this church had a multitude of problems they were dealing with. Persecution by their own brothers, their own Jewish brothers, by others in the community, by the temple and these things. And and even though the great persecution of the Herods and, and Nero hasn't come yet, they were still dealing with a lot of stuff. Christ got put on a cross not long before this. And so it wasn't a popular thing to be a Christian, but what these Christians would do is they'd come together and they'd, you know, come together and hear the teaching of God's word. They'd fellowship, they'd break bread, they'd have a meal or so, and and then they would devote themselves to praying, to seeking the Lord, to calling out to him for strength, for power, for unity, for more people to hear the gospel. I mean, I don't know what they prayed for, but they did it together in a context of togetherness. Unfortunately, prayer has become nearly non-existent in the church today. Oh, you'll go in and they'll pray, and it's, Lord, may we have a great service today and bless these people. Amen. Now let's play a bunch of songs and roll some videos and have a trapeze act, you know, and, and, and do all these other things. But what happened to prayer? <sighs> MacArthur said, sadly, prayer is much neglected in the church today. Programs, concerts, entertainment, or the testimonies of the rich and famous draw large crowds. Prayer meetings, on the other hand, attract only the faithful few. That is undoubtedly the reason for much of the weakness in the contemporary church. Unlike the early church, we have forgotten the Bible's commands to pray at all times and to be devoted to prayer. Isn't that the way that it is today in most church circles? Not in all. Some get it. So many don't. And the early church really got it. Prayer was a communing time with the Lord. It was a time to seek him for wisdom and for help, to be equipped for certain things. I mean, it was an amazing thing in this early church. And I think, sadly, so much of the church has lost its way there. Prayer is just one little thing that's it's one little nugget of time and it's a really small nugget on the worship schedule man and the prayer services of the days of old are virtually gone in most church circles there used to be times where great numbers of believers would gather in in a in buildings and places to just pray pray together pray in the holy spirit the church was so being used so powerfully by the Lord and so well-equipped in those days. And today it's so thin. And MacArthur's right when he says that, man, the, the, the lack of prayer is, the, is one of the very reasons for why there's so much trouble in the church and it's so unhealthy. Well, these folks got it, man. They prayed together, came together and prayed. And that doesn't mean they didn't have individual prayer lives. I'm sure they did. You know, they're all praying as individuals, I would suppose. Oh, most Christians do that, but they did it together. Look at uh, 43. Those are your four things there. 43 is really an amazing verse. What we've seen is what they were devoted to. Now we begin to see some of the fruit of that devotion. 
we transition a little bit here, and it's really awesome. 43 says, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Awe is a really cool word here. It's phobos in Greek. And it means fear or holy terror related to the sense of divine presence. God's presence was so incredibly powerful that the believers were filled with holy fear and terror and reverence. Some of you know who R.C. Sproul is, but he begins a fantastic book that he wrote called The Holiness of God with his own testimony of how he was converted. And it's amazing because he was converted while he was in Bible college. I guess that happens. <laughs> you know, I'm going to be a pastor. And you go to Bible college and then you get saved. And it's like, you weren't saved before? And I guess not. And it's sad, but it's a reality, right? But he tells this story of, of how he was asleep one night, the middle of the night, and he is awoke. And he feels compelled to march all the way across the campus through the sleet and snow to the chapel. And so he does so. He puts on some clothes and he marches over there and he opens the door and it's, uh, it's a really old campus. Uh, and he just, that's the door. I don't have a burp coming up or anything. That's just the door. And he comes in and the door shuts behind him and he comes in and it's this huge cathedral style old school room with you know, the pipe organ in the back, and, and it's just this massive complex, and it's got these stained glass windows. And he steps into this room, and he says the presence of God was so powerful that it drove him to his knees in holy terror, and tears began to stream. An amazing testimony, this young man who was wanting to be a pastor. He experienced the phobos, the awe, that the early church experienced. Have you ever experienced that holy terror? Have you ever experienced that holy fear where the presence of God was manifested in a way unlike before and it rocked you? I'm not sure if I've had an R.C. Sproul experience. There's been some times where I knew God was present and I was like, ah! you know, I just felt feeble. Let me crawl under this couch, you know. But have you ever experienced that where you were just, you almost became like disabled, like, oh, the presence of God was so strong. I remember one time at a, at a camp where we were worshiping God and, and singing praise songs and, and reading scripture and stuff, and, and, and it was almost like that. I mean, students began to weep, and, 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 and I began to weep, and it was a bloody mess, ah, you know, and, and it was just, and I was like, okay, don't do this emotional weird thing, don't, don't let it go there, Phil, but I, I believe, we were on this mountain in the, in the country, and it was pitch dark outside, and, and we were in this building, and it was low light, and it was just a powerful moment, and, and I believe what happened was the presence of God just enveloped that place, and it was an amazing thing, because people, without being prompted to do so, those who were present began to go to their knees. Nobody stood up front and said, go to your knees. No, it was just like, oh, the presence of God was just immense. And I think that's Phobos to some degree. Have you ever had an experience like that? I pray you do. 
I pray I do. The text says that the apostles performed many wonders and signs. The chapters ahead in Acts describe many of these wonders and signs. What was the purpose for these wonders and signs? They were designed to attract attention and to point to spiritual truth. In Acts 9, 32-35, Peter healed a paralyzed man in Lydda, Lydda, however you want to pronounce it. And after the healing, the people who witnessed it, it says that they turned to the Lord, which means they repented of their sin and believed in Jesus Christ. He became their Lord and Savior after they saw that miracle. God attended the preaching of the apostles with miracles to confirm that they were indeed his messengers. God did the same thing through the Lord Jesus Christ to confirm that he was the Son of God and the Messiah. See, there was a purpose behind Jesus' miracles to prove that what he said was true, to prove that what he taught was true, to prove that where he had come from was true. The same thing is happening here in this text. Look at 44. It says, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. During the early years of the church, the believers experienced both spiritual unity and practical oneness. They didn't form a large-scale commune like some scholars and historians try to infer. Uh, the church actually followed the same pattern that had existed in Israel for many centuries where the Jewish people showed hospitality uh, to those who come into Jerusalem for those yearly feasts and those kinds of things. You see, the Jews were instructed to be very hospitable, and they were at times. And so what the church did was it began to emulate and to do the same thing with this hospitality and this openness and this practical oneness. Individuals' homes and resources were made open and available to all the church members. And when people visited with one another, they enjoyed spiritual and gospel unity or gospel unity. They were all together. All that believed were together and had all things in common. That's that gospel unity. That's what it brings. They were very open with what they had. And we begin to see that in an incredible way in 45. It says, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need, it says. This verse illustrates the early church's devotion to caring for one another. These folks had become radically generous, which is one of the marks of genuine repentance and faith. Many weeks ago, when we, first, uh, we had our first three core gatherings and core messages, we looked at the life of Zacchaeus because we talked about how people could get involved in the church, and one of the ways was to be radically generous and to give their time, talent, and treasure. And one example that we looked at was the example of Zacchaeus and how he passed from death to life and how he passed from darkness to light. And then in that moment, after that, the fruit of that repentance and being saved and accepted by Jesus Christ, after that, the fruit was radical generosity. He went back and paid back all the people that he ripped off, like, what was it, fourfold? I mean, the guy became radically generous. And, and we're seeing the same thing in our text here. 3,000 are saved. 3,000 are baptized. 3,000 devote themselves to four critical things. 
3,000 or so or whatever, maybe more with the 120, I don't know. They what? They began to sell off their possessions. They began to open up their resources to share, to have community-style living, to meet needs. This is an extraordinary thing that's taking place in our text because the Jewish community was very tight-fisted with their money and possessions. They weren't known for giving their things away, but rather for being very stingy. And yet our text shows that the gospel had an amazing effect on this body, which was predominantly Jewish at this time. These people shifted from a mode of self-preservation to a mode of brotherhood preservation. Taking care of their brothers and sisters in Christ became a priority rather than amassing possessions. They actually realized that their possessions could be used to benefit the body rather than only themselves. This whole new way of thinking came when they were given a new identity and sense of security in Christ. No longer would they be shackled to the world's idea of what identity and security is, and that would be in what we have, in what we own, in what we drive, in what we live in, in what we wear, in the type of purse we own, in the type of phone we use. See, they transitioned away from that. They became secured in Christ. And when someone becomes secured in Christ, they can freely let go what they own because they're not all wrapped up in it. My identity's not in this particular thing. It's in Christ. So guess what? I don't really have to have it. And if someone else has a need, I can freely give it to them. We don't get this in the church. You know, so often the gospel is viewed as merely an invitation into salvation. The gospel is an invitation into a new worldview. Did you hear me? So often it's just this entry point into salvation, but it's actually an entry point into an entirely new way of thinking and functioning and operating and living. And, and sadly, pastors have reduced it down to this, just pray this prayer and come right in. And it's, it's so much more than that. The gospel calls for us to shift from this worldly kingdom, and that's exactly what we live in, to living in the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God has its own organizational structure, which is the church. And it has its own ordinances, which are the commands of Christ. And it has its own agenda, which is the glory of God. And the king of the kingdom of God, Jesus Christ, calls for his people to be stewards who invest what they have into the kingdom. Matthew 6, 19 to 20. Matthew 25, 14 to 30. It's all over the New Testament. You see, the early church did this in a number of ways. The people of the early church got this. 
that their possessions didn't belong to themselves anymore, but they belonged to a community of believers. And they got this because what did they do? They began to meet those needs, even to the point of selling off some of the things that they had so that they could meet some of those needs, so that this person could have food, or so that this person could pay their rent, or so that this person could have a set of wheels so they can get their kids to school. I mean, that's what was happening, except it was camels, I guess. I don't know, or donkeys. But you get the point, right? The early church did that in a number of ways by taking care of one another. Their physical needs, yeah, they were, the spiritual needs were being met, but they met those physical needs too, even to the point of selling possessions and things that they had to meet those needs. And, and they even went farther than that, and they sold things off and did things like that so that they could support church planters like Paul, Barnabas, and Silas. You know, even back in that day, it took money to plant a church. Because somehow the guy who went out in all these different areas and districts and provinces, he had to eat, he had to have some form of income so that he could survive, so he could focus solely on the ministry of the gospel. And the early church sold stuff. I remember Barnabas brought, sold his property and brought the money back and threw it at the apostles' feet and said, just use it for the glory of God. I got three properties. I'll be fine with one. Or maybe he just got rid of them all. The early church got it, man. Man, the early church was about leveraging what they have, using it for the glory of God, for the betterment of his people, for the expansion of his kingdom, and for his glory. You know, and another thing is the early church wasn't concerned with percentages or dollar amounts. It doesn't say the early church sold their possessions and then brought 5% to the church or gave 5% to that needy person. It doesn't say that at all, does it? They weren't hung up on percentages or on dollar amounts when it came to giving. They gave freely when a need came down the pike. The church was very organic and unstructured at this point. And I think, yeah, God is a God of order, but he had a way of doing it in the beginning that was very beautiful and very organic and very open, very transparent, very authentic. Only later did it become the system This organizational system, it's not an organism anymore. It's an organization now with structure and all these things. And and I guess in this culture, it has to be that way to some degree. But are we to allow the culture to fully dictate how we do church? Heavens no. We need to let the word of God do that. You know what one of the greatest problems in the church is today, and really this is an American thing, American church, it is percentage giving. Percentage giving has become the battle cry of clergymen and the measuring stick for congregations. And 10% is seen as the ultimate goal. And because of this, pastors have inadvertently trained their members to focus solely on a number or percentage rather than developing within them a radical, holistic New Testament view of giving, which is what the early church had and practiced. Many times the percentage even becomes a boundary line that congregants aren't willing to go over. Oh, I've got my percentage... And that's it, and that's the goal every week or every month. 
And even though God has even blessed me with more, how dare I go over that because I've done my part. common attitude amongst church members is once I give my whatever percent, I've done my part and the rest is all mine. And I can do with it how I desire. Because that's what the Bible teaches. Because that's what Pastor Jim has told me for 25 years. That certainly isn't the way the early church saw things or the way Jesus did. When Jesus entered into Jerusalem and was hailed as the king of the Jews and then was arrested, severely beaten, made to drag a heavy, heavy, splintery cross up to Golgotha then laid on that cross and nails driven through his hands and feet and raised into position as it thudded into the ground and jerked his body began to feel the weight of his body on his lungs began to bleed he didn't pour out 10% of his blood Every ounce came out because it took every ounce to cover our sin. You know, we do, we desperately need to develop a heart and attitude about giving that is like that of the early church and more importantly, like that of the Lord Jesus Christ. For those of us that are in him, we're secured in him, friends. We're not secured in what we own or what we have. We're secured in him. And he is our identity, our hope, and our future. And because of that, we can give freely what we have for the betterment of God's people and for the expansion of his kingdom and for the glory of his name. What we need to do more often as individuals and as married couples, as singles, as families, whatever it is that we are, we need to really begin to seek the Lord in regards to giving. And and ask him, because the last thing that a pastor should do is try to tell everyone what they need to give. This is something between you and the Lord. And, And maybe that's what we need to do as a church, is to begin a campaign of seeking the Lord and asking him, what is it that you would want? We can see very clearly in the scripture. And now, get, keep in mind, I'm not condemning percentages across the board. I'm not. But we must understand that according to the scriptures, percentages are always a starting point. There was no Jew that was allowed to give only 10%. Isn't that right? And so we must understand that those are starting points. And those are good ways for us to kind of evaluate what we have and to, and to see what's available and to give. But more so than looking at the percentages like that, let's not be captivated by them. And let's 
develop within us by the power of the Holy Spirit an openness and a fellowship of openness and sharing and investing into others. And some of us have been entrusted with more. And so therefore, some of us have a better uh, way or a better means to better help others and to take care of one another. Some of us can invest a little broader in the church and in the kingdom of God. But may we begin to seek the Lord to see what he would have for us. And may we be compelled by the gospel, not compulsed by a pastor, compelled by the gospel of God's grace. <clears throat> 46 and 47. <clears throat> and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Every day the believers gathered at the temple to worship and to hear the apostles teach. And, and then after church, they enjoyed meals together in their homes. And they were so encouraged and filled with joy that it says that this is that special awesome, amazing, never had it before joy that new Christians experience. Can you remember that time? Oh, I do. I was filled with so much joy, I went around and told everyone they were going with, to hell because they weren't in Christ. I mean, it just, I didn't know how to, to deal with what I was experiencing and what I was feeling and what I was enjoying. The joy was intense. The flame of their joy burned brightly. These people were pumped. You remember what that was like when you first knew the Lord? And some Christians spend the rest of their life trying to get back to that emotion because for whatever reason, they don't experience it again. I've lived in states of it on and off, I suppose, but it's available there. These folks... Man, they, they were, man, they were a joyous group. Man, they were a joyous group. They were filled with elation and happiness. The flame of their joy burned bright. And the text says that they praised God and found favor. And it's interesting. It says with all the people. It doesn't say with every believer. It says with all the people. These Christians were actually liked in their community. <laughs> what a concept, right? The people liked them. And that's not to say that, you know, all Christians are despised and, you know, and, and that's not true. But these Christians were actually liked by the common folks. They had their favor. There's a really amazing story later on in, in Acts where the temple guards were about to stone some of the apostles for preaching the gospel. They're about to just sling rocks at them till they weren't, till they, till they weren't breathing. But they chickened out at the last second because they feared that the crowds would harm them. Why? Because the crowds actually liked the apostles and those who gathered around them to hear teaching. The church was favored, it says. They were favorable. What made them favorable? What made them favored by their community? We've already read it. 
devotion, and generosity. Something powerful that happens when the world witnesses the devotion of a Christian. It's an amazing testimony to the grace of God. It can spark interest in those who are outside of Christ. And generosity is one of the biggest fishing lures in the world. When you have a church that is devoted and radically generous and filled with insane, unspeakable joy, that's not going to go unnoticed, is it? No. You don't have to sell out to be favorable. You, you don't have to act like the world and those who belong to it to become favorable, which is what Christians do so often. I want to be liked, so I'll start acting like them. No. All you need is devotion and generosity. All you need to do is remain in the Lord and be devoted to Him and generous. Those are the things that you need. It worked for the early church. Why wouldn't it work for us? That's not to say that the gospel isn't an offense or any of that, because it is to those who are perishing. But the way that we present it has everything to do with how people will respond at times. Some people just flat out reject it no, how, how, no matter how kind you are. But for the most part, when you genuinely care about somebody and you have a deep desire to see them enter into our fellowship, to join in the glorious things of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you present that, that's an attractive thing. You're offering them something that they can never get in the world. Never. The end of 47 is absolutely stellar. That's just, it's like all this great stuff and then the nugget. The almighty nugget. The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The gospel was going out via the apostles and the church was devoted to it, to their teaching and to hearing them preach. And they were devoted to the fellowship and to communion and to corporate prayer. And they responded to these wonderful things that God was doing in those contexts. They responded with radical generosity. And all of that had a profound effect on the community around them. The community began to favor the church and its message and it says, by God's wonderful grace and leading, many in that community were brought into the body. And I would add to say through repentance and faith, because that's the only way to enter. That's the marvelous work that God did in that passage. And he used his church to do it. You know, in closing, man, I want so badly for our church to be that but not just where the pastor or the apostles are the only ones preaching the gospel, but that you guys would be out proclaiming the gospel. Because see, there's a shift there. It's not just the apostles that do it anymore. It's all of God's people carry that wonderful message and need to be ready on a moment's notice to share the hope that they have. And that we as a church, and we're a new church, I get it, we're greenhorns. But man, we need to be strategic in getting fellowship together. 
Discipleship, yes, but fellowship, too, where we're coming together and investing in one another's lives. And we need to get some prayer things going on. There's just so much that I believe we need to do. And so far, it's been wonderful, and God's been blessing us. And we've had a lot of people come through our doors and come, and some have stuck and some have not, but we love them, I guess. But, you know, just for the most, we do. But for the most part, you know, there's just so much to be done. And isn't it our heart cry to be like this church? That's, man, that's, that's like, that's it, man. Praise the Lord. And some would say, and I've heard it said, that's an impossibility. That can't be done anymore. Not in this day and age. Not with iPads. Or whatever. You know, that can't be, are you kidding me? That can't be done? Then why is it in Scripture? All you've got to really do is respond to the gospel biblically, and that's what happens. Generosity, all those things come, and then that's what happens. That's the fruit. And so that's my huge prayer for our church. Desire it, and, 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 and I know that our leadership team is praying, and when we come together, we discuss these things, and, man, God is going to give us stuff that we can roll out where we can really begin to engage one another. Because so far, we've just been meeting on Sundays, and, and it's been great. I love it. But God has more for us. I know it. He does. He has greater things for us. And it's going to come through some of these great things that we see in the early church.